You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. When my students ask me, and soon enough they learn not to ask me, I always tell them I'm an unrepentant left-winger. After all, I've never thought that a Capetian monarch should rule France, so once that question is settled, I pretty much, well, you know, I'm done with that question. Of course, the seating arrangements in the Etat General have come down to us as our lexical inheritance, so I suppose we should be able to talk a little bit about the right. The good news here is that we've invited Matt Cottonetti to the show, whose recent book, The Right, gives us a very good sense of the tensions that characterize conservatism, not since the French Revolution, but certainly over the last century or so. Uh, Matt, thank you for coming on the show with us. Thank you for having me. I want our listeners to get a feel for the particularity of this history, and I think one good sight of that particularity is the focus on H.L. Mencken as a character in this story. So certainly Mencken didn't have any friends among the American fundamentalists when he was establishing his fame, but this is not a history of fundamentalism. It's a history of conservatism. So what is Mencken's place in the story? Well, um, Mencken, who was um, America's most prominent journalist um, in the 1920s and even into the 1930s, represented a type of uh, elitist right politics. He was very libertarian. Uh, He was very much opposed to the state. Um, He was anti-war. He uh, treasured his German heritage, and so he was very uh, opposed to uh, American intervention in the Great War and then again in World War II. Um, But he had a suspicion of the mass. He had a suspicion of the crowd. And that uh, manifested itself in his uh, criticisms of what he called the bourgeoisie, as well as the um, fundamentalist Christians um, whom uh, were represented by William Jennings Bryan in the uh, Scopes trial in 1925. So Mencken is really kind of this figure of an elitist, libertarian, um, kind of uh, skeptical of of democratic politics uh, figure on the right. And, and it's curious because, you know, for readers who don't know a lot about that first part of the 20th century, uh, William Jennings Bryan was the great enemy of evolution, and he was also more or less a socialist. So, I mean, yeah. those alignments have pretty much reversed over the last century. So, I mean, you know, people think, okay, if it's a conservative, it must also be a fundamentalist, but those haven't always been aligned. Well, Bryan's a very interesting case. He is, of course, one of the preeminent figures in the history of American populism, a history that goes back even prior to the American Revolution. Brian is famous for his cross of gold speech. He was nominated for the Democratic presidential nomination three times. He was a populist figure. You know, he wasn't quite a socialist. Um, His populist- I I did say more or less. Yeah, okay. Uh, Populist economics and Brian very much wanted to oppose concentration of power. He was for um, easy money. Um, But um, I think he also had a sense that the big man was um, kind of putting his thumb on the scale against the little man. And so he wanted to kind of um, even the odds and also remove the burdens that were placed on um, farmers in particular, um, but also working people to to uh, be socially mobile. 
He combined this with a um, staunch social and religious conservatism, uh, which manifested itself in his uh, prosecution of Scopes in 1925 for teaching evolution. Um, and what's interesting to me as I study this history is um, the that type of populism, uh, which was kind of associated with the Democratic Party uh, at the beginning of my story, really does kind of move in and dominate the Republican Party by the end of my story. Right, right. Now, it's not easy for someone who grew up in an age of conservative talk shows on AM radio and national conservative magazines, as I did, to imagine conservatism without that media machine. But you write of New Deal era conservatives as homeless, in a real sense, thinkers without institutions. We can say that the difference was a big one, but what kind of a big difference do those institutions make for the conservative movement? Well, I think institutions are platforms uh, which help to uh, propagate ideas um, and uh, amplify voices. Um, now, you know, there were critics of Roosevelt um, prominent uh, uh, during the 1930s after he was elected in 1932. There were kind of pugilistic columnists like Westbrook Pegler, who was, you know, very anti New Deal, very anti um, internationalism. Um, there were, uh, you know, the Hearst papers, right, and the McCormick papers, which tended to be very pro-business, very anti-New Deal. Among uh, among intellectuals, however, among um, people who uh, kind of thought of themselves as the caretakers of ideas or the most sophisticated uh, intellectual types, conservative politics, free market ideas were very much marginalized. Um, and there weren't there weren't many nationwide platforms um, uh, to espouse market economics or to um, talk about uh, uh, you know, the social or religious conservatism um, uh, during the 1930s. So that made quite a bit of difference. Uh, my story begins in the 1920s when basically uh, the Republicans didn't even think of themselves as conservative. They just kind of thought of themselves as standing for the status quo you know they were americanists they were the normal seamen um, in warren harding's phrase but it was after the new deal it's after the election of franklin Roosevelt that the right in america begins saying well maybe we're conservative which raises the question you know what are they trying to conserve and in this case what they're trying to conserve is the pre-new deal understanding of the american constitution of the powers of the presidency, of um, the state's involvement in the economy, all of these things. Um, and those ideas were just not very uh, popular, not even in the Republican party where there was a big struggle between um, uh, the uh, critics of FDR uh, and the uh, kind of um, skyons of the Eastern establishment who wanted to go along with a lot of FDR's ideas, just kind of uh, dilute them, slow down their implementation. And it's interesting. I mean, one element in that mid 20th century and, and to some extent, early 20th century uh, conservative environment um, is the rise of the Soviet Union. And, and I know that anti-communism, you know, is slow to catch on in the American labor movement, 
talk a little bit about how Soviet communism's influence shapes conservatives there in the mid 20th century. Oh, well, um, it's, it's huge. It can't be overstated. Um, so prior to the Second World War, uh, the American right opposed Franklin Roosevelt's domestic policies, um, but they also opposed Franklin Roosevelt's foreign policies. They were anti-interventionist. They thought that war was the health of the state. They thought that American entanglement in the Great War in World War I had been uh, devastating, had led to inflation, had led to um, the, the Palmer raids, the, the, the first Red Scare. They, um, they didn't want uh, America to yoke our country's destiny to great powers in Europe, which were always um, one, anti-democratic, but two, um, you know, struggling for power and mastery. Uh, World War II happens though. And um, once the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor, America declares war in Japan, then Hitler declares war in America. The right basically kind of um, uh, sublimates its criticism of Roosevelt's foreign policy. Um, people are involved in the war effort and they're spread all around the world. And we come out of the second world war with the situation where um, a, a, a power that had started the war as an ally of Hitler ended up being as powerful, one of the great victors of the war as a opponent of Hitler. And that's the Soviet Union, right? Which kind of switches sides when Hitler surprise attacks them in um, 1941. So Amer the American right now is faced with this uh, Leviathan of the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin, a totalitarian power that is now dominating Eastern Europe, uh, who's um, funding uh, communist uh, insurgencies in China, in uh, Korea, in Vietnam, um, who pretty soon after the war um, obtains a nuclear power, nuclear bomb. And the right begins to shift its foreign policy as a result. What was once a foreign policy of disengagement with the world becomes a foreign policy of engagement in the world. And so you have debate over something like the NATO treaty, right? Which we're still debating. Um, and the right, which had typically been opposed to, um, you know, quote unquote, entangling alliances such as NATO. Well, there's now, there's now a, a shift and you have some figures like Senator Arthur Vandenberg of Michigan, who had been opposed to World War II had opposed the League of Nations, he's now coming out of World War II saying, we need to be part of NATO because the Soviet threat is so great. And you start having conservative figures like Barry Goldwater elected to the Senate in 1952, who uh, is saying, you know, we need forward deployment of our forces. Uh, we need to have alliances. We need to um, intervene because the goal needs to be not only containment of the Soviet Union, but rollback of the Soviet Union, defeat of the Soviet Union. And so the specter of communism, its power, its um, expansionary aims, is what makes the right shift its attitudes on foreign policy toward one of engagement with the world and um, support for uh, intervention overseas as well. And that's interesting because, you know, one of the big critiques in 21st century conservatism is precisely that, you know, it's a, a party of war hawks 
Uh, so it's interesting that that shift is is so recent, historically speaking. Um, I want to shift, though, I mean, to the literary output there in the middle of 20th century. Uh, I teach literary text for a living, so I appreciate good storytelling when I see it. And your section on the mid-20th century conservative movement's boom is a story in seminal monographs. And your storytelling doesn't march along chronologically, which I, I appreciate. Instead, you present readers with Hannah Arendt's conception of totalitarianism that renders fascism and communism analogous rather than opposite in 1951, Bill Buckley's assault on academic progressivism and relativism also in 1951, Vogelin's rhetorical maneuver to call direct government interventions in markets and societies Gnostic in 1952, Russell Kirk in 1952 exploring conservatism's intellectual family resemblance, and only then do you remind your readers that Lionel Trilling dismissed conservatism as entirely lacking ideas in 1950. So please tell me that you structured that for the big Sophoclean reveal on purpose. And whether or not you did, uh, did the first few years of the 50s just happen to see this kind of fertility in new conservative ideas, or were there reasons that a historian should name? Well, I, th I think that it, it wasn't just a coincidence. Um, you know, when Lionel Trilling writes that uh, preface to the liberal imagination, which comes out in 1950, and he says, you know, there's no conservative ideas in general circulation, just uh, irritable mental gestures that seek to resemble ideas. He's kind of lamenting that fact. Uh, and it is in 1950. Um, because uh, Trilling thought that one of the functions of conservatism was to complicate liberalism, to make it think uh, more uh, clearly, um, to recognize the realities um, of, of the world. W one of the reasons I think there's this explosion of um, really important conservative books, and um, Whitaker Chambers's Witness is also one of them. His memoir is um, Passage from Communism into um, revealing that Alger Hiss, uh, the uh, former State Department official, had been a spy for the Soviet Union in the late 1940s, um, was that, you know, the, the, the Second World War and then, and then the rise of the Soviet Union after the Second World War presented a real intellectual challenge to people. What had gotten us into this mess? Why was it that that Western civilization basically destroyed itself over the between 1914 and 1945. What, it, what does it mean that the world is now being, you know, chopped up and to use Orwell's terms, you know, uh, Eurasia, East Asia and Oceania, right? right. Um, uh, why? And so people start giving different answers. And, you know, you mentioned Eric Vogelin and, and his answer is the rise of Gnosticism. There's Richard Weaver, right, um, who in 1948 publishes Ideas Have Consequences. His, his, uh, he's blaming nominalism um, for uh, the dis decline of the West. Um, you, you know, you, you start thinking through with Russell Kirk, he, he's trying to figure out, okay, is there a kind of a genealogy of conservatism that, uh, that I can bring to America? that can provide some balance, ballast uh, in this world where um, you have liberalism teetering into appeasement, into um, totalitarianism. So I think a lot of the literary production 
that you discuss uh, that took place at the, at the midpoint of the century had to do with trying to analyze and explain um, what had gone wrong. There is also a side of it, which was, um, I think a renewed appreciation of um, of America, of America, of, 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 of the strengths of democratic society, of um, American religion. So you have books like John Courtney Murray's um, "We Hold These Truths" come out uh, around this time from a Catholic perspective. You have Will Herberg's famous Protestant Catholic Jew uh, come out at the same time. There's a renewed interest in God. Right. This is when um, we put the words under God into the pledge, when we have in God we trust on, on the uh, currency. Eisenhower famously goes to uh, National Presbyterian uh, Church um, in Northwest D.C. Um, so there's there's a sense that, oh, you know, uh, this is a God, this is a godly uh, conflict that we're that our system is up against this atheistic materialistic Soviet system. And so let's have a renewed appreciation of the role that religion and spirituality plays in our life. I think that helps um, generate this, this new uh, renaissance conservatism. So it's a combination both of an analysis of what went wrong, but also an appreciation of the strengths uh, of our own system. Very good. And then I was saving Richard Weaver because this volume to its credit doesn't shy away from prominent conservatives, bad decisions in the face of the civil rights movement. And especially dispiriting for me, uh, but no less true, are the published words of Richard M. Weaver, one of my favorite writers on rhetoric in the face of civil rights. Uh, in my academic guild, where forgiveness is not a virtue in very many eyes, to cite Richard Weaver in a publication is tantamount to wearing a white hood to the annual conference. So linking this back to our earlier conversation, what do various elements of conservative movements have to say about the allowing those who repented of being communists and those who didn't live long enough to repent of being racist back into the fold. It seems like there is a, a forgiveness there that uh, might have been prominent in, you know, the labor movement of the mid 20th century, but certainly has vanished in the social media era. Well, I would say that uh, for the conservative movement, um, the, the conservative movement has worked best when it's welcomes um, uh, kind of exiles from other um, persuasions. And so there's a huge number of ex-communists who come into the conservative movement after the Second World War and who really shaped the movement, shaped National Review magazine in particular. Uh, and then about 20 years later, there's the migration of a smaller group, the Cold War liberals, the so-called neoconservatives, uh, they also come in and uh, are very influential within the conservative movement. Um, obviously, race is a big part of my book. There's no way to write the history of America in the 20th century in particular, or in any century, really, without talking about race. And um, one of the kind of native conservative traditions in the United States is the Southern conservative tradition, um, and uh, which is... Uh, been hostile to, to the civil, which was hostile to the civil rights movement um, and um, a defense of the Southern way of life and um, also a defense of kind of the constitutional mechanisms like the 10th Amendment uh, that would uh, insulate or, uh, or that the Southern conservatives thought ought to insulate the South from federal intervention. 
So Richard Weaver, a longtime professor, a lecturer in rhetoric at the University of Chicago, he was a Southerner. He was, uh, had studied um, with the uh, fugitive po poets, um, kind of the authors of uh, I'll Take My Stand, the Southern Manifesto in the 1930s. Um, and uh, he was a, a very much a believer that the South was really the only conservative part of American society, that the South had kind of an aristocratic social structure. The South had a very, it was permeated with religion, a sense of history, a sense of tragedy, uh, and that this was very important, that the Southern perspective needed to be uh, really um, infused into the larger conservative movement. The South stood in his view and in, this, in the view of the Southern agrarians against the modernizing forces of um, capitalism and of uh, liberalism. Um, now, Weaver, uh, you know, he, he is an opponent of the civil rights movement. And I quote from some of his letters to William F. Buckley Jr. Uh, defending segregation. He dies pretty early. So we really don't know where he would have ended up. And in fact, the Southern agrarians kind of ended up all over the place where it came to the uh, civil rights movement. Some were very much opposed to it. Others like Robert Penn Warren ended up embracing it. Um, uh, another example would be um, James J. Kilpatrick, um, uh, who I also discuss in the book. Uh, an, uh, he's a Southern journalist. He was the editor of the Richmond Times Leader, um, another defender of segregation. He, at the by the end of the 60s, has basically repudiated his views against um, the Civil Rights Movement, against the Civil Rights Act. But he's also becomes very critical of affirmative action um, forced busing. Uh, uh, and so he he's able to find a place uh, that's um, both Southern and kind of more um, accepted in mainstream American politics. So it's possible Weaver uh, could have ended up there as well. But, you know, Weaver had a definitely a platonic mind. He was, he, it was a, his, his philosophy was very, um, very just, I mean, I don't see this, say this is a bad thing. It was very radical. So I'm, I'm not clear where he would have kind of uh, ended up on some of these debates. Well, and it's interesting in the, like I said, in the guild of rhetorical studies, I mean, I have, I've floated this idea to people and uh, I, I usually get, you know, hostile stares in response, but I, I suspect that the late 20th and early 21st century hostility to Plato among rhetoricians has at least something to do with Richard Weaver. Hmm. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I haven't had the time to write that up and, you know, propose it as a publication, but like I said, I, I already uh, get ugly looks for even mentioning Richard Weaver. As I'm someone surprised they know who he is, to be honest with you. Oh, he <laughs> is the bad guy. He is the bad guy at, really? at rhetoric conferences. Yes. I mean, uh, you know, you can score pretty much guaranteed points by saying something ugly about Richard Weaver. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and the thing is, of course, you know, I teach Richard Weaver essays to my students because he has very good things to say about rhetoric. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I don't hide the fact that, yes, he was an opponent of civil rights and that's wrong. Uh, but, you know, uh, one thing about human beings is we, uh, we don't get to look back at our lives from a hundred years after we die. So, yeah. you know, he was a very, um, uh, he was a very unusual person. 
And I think that's a larger point maybe to make about the um, post-war conservatives, intellectuals. They were all very kind of eccentric. Um, Weaver, you know, basically lived like a monk in Chicago. I mean, he didn't, right. he was uh, solitary. He, he didn't have a social life. Um, he just really studied and taught. Um, and, you know, then there are figures like uh, Whitaker Chambers, not a Southern conservative, but as I said, a very famous ex-communist, but Whitaker Chambers was very tortured. He had the Dostoevsky in Seoul. Um, he was a uh, closeted homosexual. He, you know, he had problems with alcohol. Um, uh, and in addition to having a family and a farm in Maryland too, he was a very complex figure. Someone like Frank Meyer, another um, ex-communist who became very important in the early conservative movement after the war. Uh, you know, he basically kept vampire hours. You know, Meyer lived in this farm in Woodstock. Uh, he he slept all day and then worked all night. Um, spent hours on the phone. Uh, just a brilliant man, but also kind of you know kind of strange behavior. Um, and then there's you know there's Russell Kirk who. Uh, was one of the founding fathers of the post-war conservative movement with his book, The Conservative Mind, and in his many, many writings over the years. But, you know, Russell Kirk you know, wore, wore capes. Uh, he had a big walking stick. He would kind of, kind of march around the, the woods in Macosta, Michigan, where he lived. So it, it, I think it's important for us to recognize just how you, kind of how eccentric and unique these these figures were. I mean, they were not, you know, they were not what we would think of as kind of, uh, you know, sophisticated elite intellectuals, you know, uh, smoking cigarettes and uh, chatting over brandy. I mean, they were kind of isolated, um, uh, very unusual figures. And I think that that kind of uh, speaks to the place of American conservatism in the middle of the 20th century, which was it was a place that was kind of on the fringes of mainstream um, political and, and intellectual and cultural life. Very good. Well, if the 50s saw a generation of conservative intellectuals and writers rise, the Barry Goldwater campaign of 1964 saw some political superstars rise and perhaps in that campaign's aftermath rise again. So what marks Goldwater's campaign as an especially important one, even as he never became president, and who were some of the characters who emerge into our story in this campaign? Well, the Goldwater campaign is huge. You know, the, um, the Republican Party had not nominated a conservative for president really since 1936. So basically, a 30-year period where the conservative movement, the conservative sensibility had been shut out of Republican presidential politics. Well, with, Gary, with Barry Goldwater, um, the conservatives establish a beachhead within the Republican presidential selection process that becomes very important. Goldwater uh, didn't want to run for president. He especially didn't want to run for president in 1964 because he basically recognized that in the aftermath of uh, the John F. Kennedy assassination, the Americans were very unlikely to switch parties and have three presidents over the course of 18 months. Um, but he did it because he thought that his ideas and the principles of American conservatism needed to have a large platform, needed to reach a big audience, and especially a youthful audience. And many of the people involved in the draft Goldwater movement were young people who had read The Conscience of a Conservative, which was Goldwater's manifesto published in 1960, 
who had listened to his speeches, um, who had read his newspaper column, um, and just thought that he represented the rising tide of the American right. Um, so he runs, he wins a nomination over Governor Nelson Rockefeller of um, New York, kind of a uh, liberal Republican. That is to say, he was he was a cold warrior. He was strong on American defense and American foreign policy, but he was also uh, a New Deal Republican. He, he, he thought that the government should take an active role in economics and society. He was also a pro-civil rights Republican. Um, uh, some of the figures who, who emerge, I just named um, a couple. Uh, one is uh, a political philosopher, Harry Jaffa, who um, helps write Goldwater's famous acceptance speech, where Goldwater infamously said that, let me remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice, um, and moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. Um, Goldwater's chief economics advisor was Milton Friedman, uh, who um, came up with a, just a ton of ideas uh, to make uh, the American economy more market-oriented uh, for Barry Goldwater. Um, one of the major grassroots activists in the Goldwater campaign was a woman named Phyllis Schlafly, who would become a very important figure in the history of uh, right populism in the United States in the 20th century. And then most importantly, um, the Goldwater campaign saw the national political debut of Ronald Reagan, who um, had been um, trending Republican for for a while, um, had been giving a lot of speeches that were very pro-free uh, enterprise, anti-communist uh, across the country. But his speech in support of Goldwater uh, aired in the last week of the campaign um marked his debut and um immediately after that speech called the time for choosing or just the speech uh reagan was uh deluged with calls to run for governor of california so uh, the goldwater campaign uh, goldwater lost of course you know the famous goldwater banner read in your heart you know he's right and then the democrats responded with the banners that read in your guts, you know, he's nuts. Um, and, uh, you know, after, after Goldwater loses and one of the, if not the biggest landslide in American history, uh, the, the conservatives kind of embrace it. And, you know, they, they have bumper stickers that say, you know, 27 million people can't be wrong because it's the number of votes that he got. Um, uh, so he's a very important figure despite losing in such a, um, dramatic fashion very good i hate to rush past the 70s matt when conservative <laughs> jurisprudence becomes so significant within the broader yeah. conservative movement but we have but an hour and course, we've not yeah. gotten to 1981 the beginning of the reagan administration and yeah. i once again want to commend this book you point out the undeniable tensions within that administration both with the influence of reverend moon's money and with the struggles between neoconservatives and the newly named paleoconservatives our listeners are all going to go out, get their hands on your book, and read all the details. So we have the liberty today uh, to focus on the big picture. Do you regard your version of the Reagan story as a needed counterweight to overly rosy pictures of the 80s? Or are you doing something more like reminding people of what they already knew about the Reagan years? <laughs> well, um, 
you know, we have uh, new generations of readers and students who don't remember the Reagan years, so they didn't know much about the Reagan years. Um, uh, I was just remarking the other day that, um, you know, Reagan in his second term was close to being impeached over the Iran-Contra scandal. And yet, if you bring up Iran-Contra today, for most people, they will look at you with a blank stare. This hugely important story uh, that basically uh, obsessed Washington uh, for the final two, three years of Reagan and then into the early years of George H.W. Bush is completely forgotten. I, I, I'm old enough to remember, Matt, so you're, yeah, okay. you're in good company yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, our younger readers can can look it up um, in my book. Uh, I'm trying to do a few things with Reagan in my story. Um, one is I want to portray him as just one character in the history of the American right. Most narratives of the American right focused just on him and his rise and his presidency and then what happens after he departs the scene. Um, I get that. Ronald Reagan is one of the two most important presidents of the 20th century, in my view. Um, he's certainly the greatest Republican president um, of the 20th century. Um, but I think by focusing on Reagan, uh, we create kind of a Reagan distortion field and we see everything through, through him. And I, that I think creates a warped picture of the American right. So uh, I wanna try to just treat him as one part of the story. Second thing is when it is important to recall that um, the, the idealization, romanticization of Reagan doesn't start until years after he's out of office. And at, during his presidency, there were heated debates and criticisms of him for not um, uh, fulfilling the promise of American conservatism. So early on, you have kind of criticisms of his foreign policy when he um, refuses to kind of um, uh, harshly sanction the Polish government after the communist Polish government institutes martial law early in his administration. Uh, George Will, the columnist, writes a bar biting column saying, you know, the uh, Reagan administration cares about more, more about commerce than about freedom, right? Um, Norman Podhoritz, the neoconservative intellectual, uh, writes a long essay for the New York Times magazine saying this, you know, the neoconservatives are in despair over Reagan's foreign policy. This is in 1982. I mean, <laughs> this, is, this is even before Reagan... Uh, begins negotiating with Gorbachev in his second um, in 19, um, 1984 and, and then 86. So uh, conservatives were always kind of uh, yapping about Reagan uh, throughout his presidency. Uh, and I think it's important to remember that. I also, so that shows one is that conservatives are very hard to satisfy. <laughs> There's always running, running, uh, commentary among conservatives uh, against Republican politicians, and conservatives often don't know how good they have it. I mean, we, uh, my mentor Fred Barnes likes to say, you know, if Reagan couldn't do it, uh, it would be very hard. Now, I think there might be a new president set. People might say if, Reagan, if Trump can't couldn't do it, he, you know, it'd be very hard. But certainly, if Reagan couldn't do it, it would be hard to do. Then the second thing about Reagan is once you view him as just one 
major character in the history of American right. You begin to see that in some ways he was the exception of the rule, that he had um, a very unique set of personal characteristics and political vision um, and came about you know, at a time that defined by the Cold War and the conflict uh, between East and West that um, is more maybe a product of its time than um, the standard for the American right over the course of the hundred years that I uh, describe in my book. And it's during Ronald's Reagan, Ronald Reagan's administration that, uh, you know, with the demise of the fairness doctrine, we start to get uh, nationally syndicated conservative talk radio. Uh, but I definitely think of Rush Limbaugh as an artifact of the J George H.W. Bush and the Bill Clinton years. And I'll confess at this point that the fondness with which very intellectual conservatives in my own personal circles speak and write of Rush Limbaugh sometimes baffles me. Uh, my instincts tell me that the National Review and Weekly Standard readers of the world have to have at least a conflicted relationship with the guy who flung personal insults at the teenage daughter of a sitting U.S. president. Or is that just wishful thinking on my part? Is is Rush Limbaugh the id of all of the intellectual conservatives? <laughs> uh, maybe. Um, I, as you say that, uh, I actually kind of write respectfully if not glowingly of it in my book as well. I, and, and, and you know I'll, I'll go ahead and i mean I'm, my listeners already know this but i'm neither a democrat nor a republican right. so i, I kind of look with uh bemusement at both yeah so well you're anti-capation <laughs> as you say so, I mean, that's good. we can build on that i'm with you on that um i mean so limbaugh uh he's a very interesting figure for a few reasons one is uh as you suggest, because of changes in the marketplace, because of technological changes, because of regulatory changes, he is able to burst onto the scene in the late 1980s. Uh, and then national syndication um, brings him audience of tens of millions of people. Um, so he's extremely popular. Um, the second reason he's important is uh, when Reagan leaves the scene in January 1989, the conservative movement doesn't really have a national leader. And um, Rush becomes kind of the voice of the conservative movement during the presidency of HW uh, and into the Clint early Clinton years um, uh, because he's criticizing HW for the uh, infamous 1990 budget deal that you know raised taxes and that broke HW's promise in 1988, you know, read my lips, you know, new taxes. Um, so he's, he's kind of holding the HW to account on a conservative standard. The third reason he's important is he, he was trying to educate his audience as much as entertain it, okay? So he would, he would read National Review or, articles and commentary or the Wall Street Journal op-ed page. He would bring those authors on occasionally. But if you ever want to see Rush Limbaugh nervous, which was rare, uh, look up his appearance in the early 1990s on William, William F. Buckley Jr.'s firing line program. And it's just clear that Rush really admires William F. Buckley Jr., who 
very unlike him in a lot of ways, right? I mean, who's not this, you know, kind of shock jockey type who is, doesn't reach an audience of tens of millions, uh, who has a strange accent, you know, and is always carrying a clipboard when he's on television. But Limbaugh loves it and they got along very well. So in a way, what Limbaugh was doing was popularizing the conservative intellectual movement for a mass audience. But the fourth point I'll make is the flip side of that is he was also uh, shaping that um, conservative intellectual movement with his own um, brand of uh, radio disc jockey personality, which could be crude, uh, which could be coarse, um, which could be um, offensive to some people. Um, and that I think began to shape American conservatism as well, much more popular, more populist, um, still tethered to some of the ideas, but also uh, coarser in a way. Um, but that is all for all those reasons why I say in the book that you can't that you can't really um, overstate Limbaugh's importance to American conservatism. Right, right. And and to be fair, uh, the people who I find even more baffling than very intellectual Rush Limbaugh fans are very intellectual progressives who like the shock jock behavior of their public media figures. Right. I I, I say you people should know better. You had to deal with Rush Limbaugh for twenty years. And you right. should know better than to idolize, you know, his mirror image. But again, I, I'm the outsider looking in. I don't get it. You, you're educating me. You're educating me. This is good. <laughs> sure. And, you know, and he retains that role up through the Trump years. Um, when Trump comes on the scene, Limbaugh had known Trump from Florida. Um, uh, and, and Limbaugh is saying he's a populist. He's not a conservative. He's a populist. And that's an important distinction. But he also wasn't, and I think this is a sign of the times as well, he wasn't as critical of Trump's populism as he had been of Ross Perot, say, right? Right. And then, and then by the time Trump wins the nomination, Limbaugh is, again, important, influential in, in shaping, the, moving the conservative movement toward a pro-Trump position, um, famously reading the entirety of the uh, flight 93 election essay right in september of 2016 saying this is it this is our last shot to uh to to save america um then becoming a major supporter of trump's throughout his presidency uh, eventually of course getting the uh presidential medal of freedom at the 2020 state of the union uh which was um kind of the high point of Limbaugh's career, uh, as well as the, the Trump presidency in retrospect. Right, right. Well, I don't want to get to Trump yet because I okay. was in seminary for the first two years of George W. Bush and mm -hmm. in my Master of Arts and PhD coursework in English literature for the remainder. So I could have talked about the W years for the whole hour. We okay. didn't. So what are some of the tensions briefly and what are some of the struggles of these eight years that will help our listeners link these years to the Obama and Trump administrations that we're gonna finish up talking about. Okay, sure. Well, I think the important thing to recognize is that after America wins the Cold War, after the Soviet Union essentially dissolves itself at the end of 1991, the, uh, the glue that bound American conservatism together uh, begins to deteriorate. Um, 
the, the force that had molded the American right to a policy of engagement with the world begins to dissipate. And a big debate breaks out on the right about what, what does conservatism stand for in a post-Cold War world? Um, and there are people like Patrick Buchanan who say that American conservatism ought to go back to what it was like prior to World War II. Um, there are other people like um, uh, William Crystal and Robert Kagan who say that now we need to have a more expansive foreign policy, that America is now responsible for global security. And that requires much more uh, assertiveness in foreign affairs, more military intervention. There's this huge debate breaks out in the 1990s. Uh, w, of course, uh, elected under very controversial circumstances in 2000. Within nine months of becoming president, you have the worst attack on American soil in our history, more civilians killed than ever in 9-11, the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. W becomes a war president. He thinks it's his mission to defend America from another uh, major terrorist attack. And he's willing to take great risks to basically revolutionize American foreign policy um, in order to do that. He um, ditches the policy of containment, which had been traditionally America's approach to global threats, for one of prevention and preemptive war. And um, he also believes that America should no longer be uh, a status quo power, uh, especially in the Middle East, where we had supported um, uh, autocracies in the form of monarchies or in the form of military dictatorships um, for much of the 20th century. For W, America needs to be a revisionist power. We need to have a freedom agenda that would bring democracy to these countries. Um, meanwhile, W also thinks conservatism needs to be much more active, uh, <laughs> much more uh, 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 involved in education, in healthcare. Um, mm -hmm. Compassionate, uh, perhaps? In, in compassion conservative, <laughs> compassionate conservatism, right? So W is really changing a lot of things. And um, there's a reaction. Um, the reaction begins in his second term. Uh, when he wants to um, uh, legalize the status of illegal immigrants in the United States as part of a comprehensive immigration reform, you begin to see a lot of the conservative base appeal off from him. Meanwhile, the war in Iraq is not going well. Uh, he, he takes too long to send additional forces to Iraq. He takes too long to change the strategy in Iraq. And by the end of his term, uh, despite the, in my view, success of the surge in Iraq, um, there's there's widespread discontent on the right with W's foreign policy. And we see that with the Ron Paul movement. Uh, and finally, W's uh, domestic policies is his encouragement of home ownership, um, his kind of uh, support for easy money, all of these things. Um, they wind up. Uh, through uh, many other circumstances as well, with the global financial crisis. So the Republican economic program is kind of delegitimized. And especially when W says the answer to the global financial crisis is the bailout. Well, all the forces on the right who are against bailouts uh, rebel. And so by the, the main result of W's presidency is that the American right becomes very anti-establishment, very anti-Republican elite. Um, much more willing uh, to embrace grassroots populism, much more eager to find someone who come, can come out of 
out from outside the system and truly disrupt America because the sense is uh, beginning in W's second term and continuing throughout Obama's that the American elite based in Washington, D.C. and New York City and Los Angeles uh, is failing the American people. I want to circle back to the media ecosystem because we talked about, you know, the rise of the publications and of AM radio. When you write about the social media melee that has characterized the last dozen or so years of American political life, you have little to commend. So make the case for your interviewer here. Uh, convince me, I see the vices of Trump's Twitter and Bannon's Breitbart as relatively predictable evolutionary steps emerging from the AM radio empires of Limbaugh and Hannity, the bizarre infotainment, infotainment product that is Fox News. What is it about social media ecosystems that distinguishes them, in your mind, from what we already had back in the George W. Bush days? Well, I think the primary thing is uh, disintermediation, the, the lack of the lack of um, any controlling force uh, that is in between the producer of content and the reader or viewer of content. So um, the talk radio course had call in uh so there was interactive but you know the producers and the hosts would control who called in <laughs> they screened the calls and it wasn't all call in it was it was produced it was thought through um fox of course for uh basically 20 years was controlled by roger ailes uh, the the brilliant but you know, flawed uh genius who created Fox uh, and exercised, you know, essentially authoritarian control over the network. He, no one got too big for Fox. And, and when, say, Glenn Beck uh, started heading down a conspiratorial rabbit holes, Ailes booted him uh, from the network, right? It took a while for him to do so, though. It took a couple years. That, um, that's a long time. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think what he came out I don't know when he started at Fox, but he didn't last very long. Um, in any case, remember, but I, I, I take your point. Though. I take news. your point. Okay. <laughs> um, that's not that's not present in social media. Uh, that everyone everyone is uh, their own producer, their own editor. Um, it, the person, what the, you know, it's not a producer who decides what rises to the top. It's the algorithm. Now, of course. Many on the right say that the algorithm is uh, manipulated in order to de-emphasize conservative voices, but you know conservative voices are still very popular on social media. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, um, and uh, and so this lack of mediation, I think, can create uh, errors. It can, uh, and it can also um, uh, incentivize extremism. Um, and uh, and so I think that's the real difference I see between um kind of the talk radio rush um rush fox media structure and the rise of the internet and uh social media in particular that's fair enough that's fair enough we're coming up on the end of the show so i'm going to let you parry a thrust that some of our listeners will have for you when they read this book and by the way listeners you should read this book a certain kind of reader is going to see how you write about barry goldwater and george w bush and especially ronald reagan and see hints of hagiography. 
So what have you to say to readers who suspect you of picking winners in this story? Well, I'm not so sure I, I, they'd see me saying George W. is a winner um, in the story, um, but that's interesting. Um, uh, like I said, a certain kind of reader. A certain kind of reader. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess a certain kind of reader. Um, some, yeah, some reviewers said that they thought for three quarters of the book that Pat Buchanan was one of the heroes, and that all of a sudden at the end, I, oh, fascinating! Uh, I turned out that no, he's not one of my heroes. Um, no, I. I actually respect him greatly. Um, uh, now, look, I'm a historian. Um, the historians have favorites. What can I say? Um, I have a certain view of what American conservatism ought to be. It ought to be American. It ought to be tied to the principles of the Declaration of Independence. It ought to be viewed through the framework of the American Constitution and its amendments. It ought to be tied to the political traditions and visions of the American founding. Um, I think Ronald Reagan uh, and I think Goldwater and Reagan were were in that tradition. I think Reagan was a better politician than Goldwater. Goldwater was all hard edges, uh, which makes for it very entertaining, you know, research and writing. Um, but Reagan was much sunnier, much more optimistic, and that made him much more popular. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I guess I would say guilty as charged. Uh, but I would disagree if they think that I'm uh, lionizing W. I think I, I do think that W. I had um, maybe the correct instincts uh, after 9-11, uh, but he uh, totally botched uh, the implementation. And his, his um, distance from the conservative base had far-reaching consequences. And uh, I think that was a big mistake. Fair enough, fair enough. We have not by any means hit all or even most of the important parts of this book. So again, readers, go get your hands on some copies. But at the end of the hour here, I want to return to the book's introduction, which promises to relate, quote, the interplay of ideas and institutions, end quote, rather than focusing exclusively on social or economic forces or exclusively on grand historic personalities, both of which must be temptations when writing a book like this. So here's the question I'd like you to answer here at the end. One of the commonplaces of journalism about the, you know, third decade of the 21st century is that we are in an era of suspicion of in institutions or distrust in institutions. Uh, why is it that you still highlight institutions uh, in this kind of environment? Well, um, I think they're, they were key to building the movement. Um, uh, you know, there's one particular type of institution that I probably pay the most attention to, and those are the journalistic institutions. Um, I got into this project by just re reading old magazines. It's one of my hobbies. Partly that's from professional development. I like to see how other writers um, write uh, what they wrote about. I also like to see how other editors selected stories and packaged material. And that's how I got into this because I was just reading all these magazines and I was saying, no one remembers this stuff. We have to tell the story of this. Um, so I do, I think, probably emphasize the journalistic institutions and the and particularly the smaller intellectual journalism uh, in particular. But I do think it's important to appreciate the, the role that institutions play. But institutions are really, I think, um, uh, a reflection of their leader. So I think this is when the contingency of personality uh, comes into the picture as well. You need, you need effective, strong, principled leaders to direct American conservatism 
toward its best self. And um, without that leadership, uh, it can go in um, very different directions. Elitist direction on the one hand, removed from the concerns of everyday people, but also it could go into a more uh, darker demagogic uh, conspiratorial direction, which um, is not only wrong in my view, but it's also uh, self-repudiating in the eyes of the larger American electorate. Very good. Matt, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about conservatism, American history, or whatever else as we head for the door? Well, I think one of the lessons that I took from researching and writing this book is uh, Ecclesiastes is right. There's nothing new under the sun. That many of the debates that Americans are having, uh, many of the debates that the American right is having, have been had had the before. And so I, I hope one of the things that readers take away from the right is a sense that, you know, we have been here before. Here are the different sides of the argument uh, 60 or 80 years ago or 30 years ago. Um, and we got through that and we will, uh, with much turbulence, get through the present troubles. Matt Cottonetti, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you for having me. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism from Basic Books. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Brett Stack, and I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.